Praise the Lord. You may be seated this morning. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We continue in our text this morning, working our way through the book of Romans. We're going to be looking at verses um, 16 and 17 this morning. And I'll just read it for you quickly, just those two verses, and then we'll pray and we'll get to work. Paul, writing to the church at Rome, says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pause for a moment and ask God to help us, and then we'll get to work. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for this incredible letter given by your Holy Spirit, inspired, Lord, by you. As Paul put pen to paper, you speaking through him to the church at Rome and through Rome to all of us who are gathered here today. Father, as we consider this text this morning, our prayer, Lord, is that you would help us to see that our salvation is from faith and that it is intended to lead us onwards in faith and to faith, greater faith. Do that work, we pray this morning, in the name of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, according to your word. Amen. I want you to stop and reflect for just a moment on these two Jews living in Egypt their very last night before the Exodus. It is a cool evening after an unseasonably warm day. All of Egypt has been totally and utterly destroyed from the Nile River to the cattle to the crops God has rained down his destruction, and yet despite all of this, Pharaoh refuses to let the Jews go. Time and again, God has said, let my people go in order that they may worship me. And time and again, Pharaoh has said no. And on this particular fateful night, the Hebrew children have been given special instructions. At twilight, they are to eat a Passover lamb, which has been sacrificed. And they are to take the blood of that lamb. And they are to cover their doors, the top post, as well as the two lintels, with the blood of the lamb. And these two Jews, we'll call them Bob and John, such good Jewish names they are named, are walking along after having enjoyed this meal, and they are talking with one another about what Moses has said is about to happen. John says to Bob, Well, God has told us what to do through his servant Moses. I'm ready for it. Bring it. Bring it. To which Bob responds, Well, I mean, I'm a little bit nervous. I mean, Who knows really what's going to happen tonight? And John says, well, I mean, you've slaughtered the lamb, right? You've daubed the two doorposts with the blood. You've put the blood on the lintel, right? You've done that, haven't you? Well, if that's true, 
you're all ready to go, aren't you? What more do you need? And he responds, of course I've done that, but I'm not stupid. It's still pretty scary when you think of all the things that have happened here over the last couple of weeks recently. You know, flies and the river turning to blood and giant hail falling from the sky. It's pretty, it's pretty awful when you take it all in. And now here we are, there's the threat of the firstborn being killed. It's all right for you, I guess. You've got three sons, but I've only got one son. And I love my little Charlie. And of course, you know the angel of death is passing through tonight. And I know what God says. I, I know, I know, I know, I know. I know what God says. I put the blood there. I did the thing. But still, it's pretty scary. How do I really know that that blood will keep us safe? And so John responds, It'll keep you safe, brother. Bring it on. I trust the promises of God. That night, the angel of death sweeps across the land. And as the scripture tells us, there is a tremendous upcry that erupts as the angel of death strikes down all the firstborn sons of all those who have not been covered, have not had their homes covered by the blood of the lamb. And the question I pose to you tonight is what about those two Jews, John and Bob? What do you think? Which one of them, based on their faith, or the lack thereof, I should say, lost his son that night? And the answer to that question is, neither one of them. Neither one of them. You see, their salvation did not depend upon their confidence, their, the strength of their faith in the blood. It depended entirely upon the blood of the Lamb. Their deliverance, their salvation, their, if you want to use this fancy theological word, their justification depended entirely upon being covered by the sacrifice of the innocent Lamb, their sins being absolved in God's eyes by the gift of this animal's blood, this innocent animal sacrificed for them. And all of this, of course, is a foreshadowing and a prophetic foretelling, a prophetic foretelling of the one lamb who would come, Jesus, the Son of God, who would be the Lamb of God, who would take away, as the Apostle John says in the Gospel of John, the sins of the world. It didn't matter how convinced or how strong their faith was. It simply mattered that they had sufficient faith in order to take that blood. And it is true for you and me today. Our salvation, as we understand it in light of the exodus of Israel from Egypt, our salvation does not depend upon the greatness of our faith. It does not depend on the strength of our faith. As Jesus taught in the Gospels, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, that will move mountains. And indeed, even if your faith is so small, the size of nothing more than a mustard seed, it will move God to grant forgiveness and salvation to you if you would but place that faith in Jesus Christ. But we're left with a question this morning in the same way that those two Jews, John and Bob, along with Bob's little son, Charlie, were all saved on that particular night. 
The question was, having been saved, what do they do now? And that's the question for you this morning that is presented from Romans chapter 1. Having been saved, what do you do now? The question remains before all of us. Having been justified, how now do we go forward and live with Christ? I want you to look with me in Romans chapter 1. Take a look in verse 16. We've been hammering this particular verse extensively for the last couple of weeks. Paul makes this statement, he is not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of the good news. The reason he's not ashamed of it is because it is the power of God, he says, unto salvation for everyone who believes. Now, the way that your Bible is going to translate that, it sounds like it's a snapshot, that it's a singular one-time type of faith. But really, as we understand this particular verb in the Greek, it's present continuous action. A better way to understand that word believes is to translate it in the sense of is believing. What Paul is saying here is that he is not ashamed of the gospel, that it is the power of God for salvation, for ultimate final deliverance from everything, from our sins to this broken world around us, to the body of death that we now live in. It will bring about final, ultimate salvation. We, we might use a different word. We might say it's glorification when we're resurrected with new, new eternal bodies, spiritual bodies, as Paul calls them in 1 Corinthians 15. We will have ultimate final salvation so long as we are believing the gospel. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of salvation for everyone who is believing. So that's where he begins. To see the way this is discussed elsewhere in the book of Romans, don't don't flip there necessarily, but just listen. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 30, Paul says that those whom he justified, there's that big word, justification, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those whom he declares to be righteous based upon the blood of Christ, he will ultimately bring to a state of glorification. Justification, which is God's righteousness imputed to us, is the foundation of our future glorification, okay? To see that same order of salvation in slightly different language, in Romans 8.32, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over to death for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? In other words, the foundation for all of our future hope of life, all of our future joy, the ultimate salvation from this broken world and this body of death, that ultimate salvation that you and I are looking forward to, all of it hinges upon that initial moment of justification in which we trust in Christ for the forgiveness of all of our sins. This is the pattern that we're going to see over and over and over again in the book of Romans, from Romans chapter 8 to Romans chapter 5, and here we see it in Romans chapter 1, verses 16, and se- verses 16 to 17. This is the great theme and the structure of this book. All too often, Christians get caught up in looking at themselves I would suggest to you in love that this is a form of spiritual navel-gazing. It's not appropriate. It's not healthy. But we all do it. Some of us, I think, are tempted to do it more often than others, where we're constantly looking at our faith and asking if we have enough. What Paul is saying is, 
we need to understand that as we look to Christ, Christ saves us, and we need to move forward confident in that justification. I'm sure I've shared this with you before, but you've all heard the story of the three men running from the bear. There was a bear chasing several men in the woods. You've heard this or you've not heard this? Some of you are shaking your heads yes. Some of you have not heard this. Okay. There are three men being chased by a bear in the woods. They're fleeing for their lives as this grizzly is bearing down upon them. And they come to a river in wintertime that has been frozen over and is covered with ice. Now, immediately they're presented with a dilemma. They're not sure how thick the ice is. They're not sure whether or not if they run out across this river onto this ice that it will hold them. But they're caught between a bear and a frozen river. They're caught between a rock and a hard place. And so as they consider the river before them, the three men have three different responses. The first man just flies off of the the bank there and just lands with full force on that ice and keeps on running, knowing that the bear is close on his heels. He just slams down on that ice and takes off. The second man comes to the ice and says, "Mm, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. But ultimately he realizes he has to trust it and he steps out into it. And it, it, of course, holds him. And the third man comes along and he says, oh, you know, I'm not sure. And he kind of hems and he haws and he sort of gently puts one foot on on the ice and it's kind of okay and he kind of gently eases out onto it. And the point that I just want to draw to your attention this morning is that it didn't matter how confident each man was in the ice. The ice supported all three of them. Now, a lot of times what we end up doing as Christians is we start looking at our faith and wondering as though we're this man on this riverbank with this bear chasing us, whether or not we should have confidence in the ice. And then we step out on the ice and we're thinking to ourselves, I wonder if I have enough confidence in this ice. And then we step out a little bit further and we're thinking, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I don't have enough confidence in this ice. I don't trust it at all. But look at your feet. Where are you? On the ice. The bear is coming. You don't have time for the navel gazing. You don't have time to continue wondering whether or not you're standing on the ice or not. Here we are upon the blood of Christ. We believe in it. We're justified by it. And we must continue to hope in it. We must see here in verse 16 that God has accomplished once and for all in the death of Jesus Christ, dying in our place, all that is necessary to save us. And he gives it to us freely as a gift through faith the very moment that we believed, however great or small that belief may have been. And the more we stare at our own faith, The longer we delay gazing at ourselves, it changes not one thing. It does not alter one fact that we were saved the moment we trusted in Christ. Now, as we go forward into the book of Romans, it's important to recognize, church, that the book of Romans is going to demand a great many things from us as believers, as followers of Jesus. But we are not to do any of these things that the book of Romans asks of us out of any misguided attempt to somehow, through what we do, take away our guilt or to somehow earn our righteousness before God. 
The book of Romans, in a sense, is going to call all of us to tear off across that frozen river, running towards the other side, towards the promised land. But in doing so, we're not earning any standing with the frozen ice before us. It is what it is, and it is upon that rock, that foundation, that we stand as we run. If we don't know ourselves to be completely acquitted from all wrongdoing, forgiven by God the Father, and counted righteous, we will not be able to walk the path that lays before us, which leads to life. Either we will despair and turn to worldliness, or we will try to earn our way to God's favor with moral and religious performances. Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who is believing, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. In verse 17, if you take a look with me, he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And now he quotes a particular passage. This is from Habakkuk 2.4. In the first chapter of Romans, it says, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Everything that God requires of us as believers assumes first that we are justified. It assumes first that we are placing our faith in God. And it's from that secure position that we must continue to fight sin and unbelief. In order to justify this, Paul quotes Habakkuk. In chapter 2 and verse 4, it begins, if you were to actually read it in the book of Habakkuk, it begins, Behold, his soul is puffed up with pride. It's talking about the wicked man. His soul is puffed up. This is, this is pride. But the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk contrasts a wicked man, and the wicked man believes in himself, but the righteous man is believing in God. And Habakkuk tells us that the righteous man shall live his life by faith. So we understand from Habakkuk and the way that Paul is using it in Romans chapter 1 that there are two real core meanings that are going on here. Rescue depends upon faith, number one. And number two, our life is gained by faith. So it's the second part that we need to look at more carefully now. As we look at Habakkuk chapter 2 and verses 4, The prophet Habakkuk says that the wicked man is puffed up with pride. He's puffed up. He believes in himself. But the righteous person, and it's an interesting construction, the righteous person shall live by faith. Here, Paul uses it to say that it is faith which brings justification. In verse 16, it says, For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who is believing. So God saves based upon faith. But as Paul is picturing faith here, it is not merely a one-time understanding of events that transpired 2,000 years ago on the cross. As Paul quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, he is describing an ongoing life of faith that continues to believe. And this is at the core of what is being said at the beginning of verse, six, verse 17, in which he says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith 
before faith. I just, this thing is really popping and buzzing. I'll pull a microwave, microphone away from my face a little bit there. So the last thing we want to ask of these verses is this question. What does from faith for faith really mean? First, the only real parallel to this phrase is found in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says there, we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. He's talking about his evangelistic witness. And he says when he goes and he preaches the gospel, he presents that presentation of the gospel as though it's a type of aroma. Different people smell it different ways. He goes on to say, to those who are perishing, we are the aroma of death, from death to death. And to those who are being saved, he says, we are an aroma from life to life. This is the only other time that this particular construction is used in the New Testament. A lot of people ponder over that, from faith to faith. The closest parallel we have from the same man who wrote this phrase is found in 2 Corinthians. But as we look at it there, it's different wording, death to death, life to life. Here it's from faith to faith. I guess the most natural interpretation seems to be that when Paul's message, uh, talking about 2 Corinthians, that Paul's message, when, uh, when he was sharing the gospel, uh, that as he presents the gospel to those who are to be saved, it awakens them. But to those who are perishing, it only confirms them in their death. Paul's point in 2 Corinthians is that the presentation of the gospel has its intended effect. That some people hear those words of mercy and forgiveness and they immediately hate it. That as they hear it, it brings conviction and they rage against it. And so Paul describes it as though they're smelling a bad smell from death to death. But to those who are being saved, he says... It is as though they're, they're smelling a pleasant smell when they hear the gospel. They're being brought from life to life. As we consider that metaphor, and again, there within 2 Corinthians, Paul explains how a supernatural transformation is brought about in the heart of the person when he hears the gospel. A little later on, he says, talking about those who responded in faith, he says that... Uh, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts to give to us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. A number of years ago, I got fed up with my alarm clock. I'm sure you've all been there. If you're a working individual and you have to get up early, when it's time to wake up and go to work, the alarm clock goes off, and uh, for the last... I don't know, 50, 60 years, as long as the alarm clocks have been around, it's made one particular sound that we've all come to dread with absolute hatred. I mean, who would have thought that we would devise a way of awakening, awakening ourselves from slumber by creating this ominous sort of death knell? <laughs> you know, oh man, now I've got to get up and go to work. I was really sick and tired of it. And uh, I happened to be Christmas shopping for my wife on Amazon, and I happened to notice in the suggestions that popped up there, there was a new kind of alarm clock. It's a Sony Sunlight. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this before, but you can program it for the time you want to wake up, 
And it's a, a really bright light that eventually that slowly comes on like natural sunlight. So if you want to get up at 5 a.m. or 5.30, you program 5.30 in as your start, as your awake time. And what happens is about 20 minutes before you're supposed to be awake, it comes on with a very faint glow. Not bright, not like a bright shining light piercing into your eyes, just a very faint glow. And gradually over the course of 20 minutes, in 30 to 60 second intervals, it slowly increases the brightness of the light. And it changes from an orange soft glow to a bright white glow. I, put, I bought this clock because I thought, I must have this. This, is, this will be the way to wake up in the morning. And of course, they had all kinds of scientific research that went with it. Uh, you know, it, it, it causes certain chemicals and your, you know, your eyes detect it through the, through the eyelids there and it causes certain chemicals to start to, to drop and, and you just start to naturally wake up. And I can tell you to this day, it is glorious waking up in the morning. Even if the sun is not awake, even if there's no sunshine outside, which there isn't like, you know, eight, six, eight months out of the year, it's dark when it's time to get up because of where we're positioned But this thing goes off, and it gradually, over the course of 20 minutes, illuminates the room. And at the 20-minute mark, if I'm not awake yet, then birds begin to chirp very softly. (laughs) That's another setting you can put into it. And over the course of another 10 minutes, the birds get louder and louder. It starts off as a very faint chirp, chirp, tweet, tweet, you know, and then it gets louder and louder. I wake up in the morning. My heart is not racing, you know, that eh, eh, you're like, huh, and you're kind of jerked awake. The adrenaline is not flowing. I'm usually wide awake before I get to that 20-minute mark. I almost never hear the birds chirping. But even when I hear the birds chirping and I start to wake up and realize it's time to get up, I am always in a pleasant, wonderful frame of mind. The closest I can compare it to is when we're on vacation and we don't have to get up for anything. We don't have to be anywhere at any certain time. And we just sleep in and the sun comes up and we start to gradually wake up. We're like, oh, it's time to wake up. That sort of gentle, peaceful wakefulness is so nice. The reason I share all of that with you this morning is because that's the imagery that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians. When the gospel comes to certain people, it's as though the sun gradually shines in their heart. That's the exact wording that he uses. It's as though they have slowly been brought awake from sleep. They see now because God has spoken light into their heart and they're able to understand the joy of the morning. They're able to understand the brilliance of the world around them and the one who is illuminating this world, and they are ready to step out and to begin their day. By contrast, those who do not want to have a relationship with God, as soon as they hear the gospel, it's as though they've been awakened, but they refuse the dawn. They refuse the morning. They loathe and despise the world that lays before them, which God has created. They want nothing to do with the one who illuminates it. And it's as though they are suicidal. They would rather kill themselves to continue their slumber, to continue on in their fantasy world, rather than to see the real world, the beautiful world that God has prepared for them. When Paul says here in Romans chapter 1, 
That the gospel is the power of salvation from faith for faith. As we hear that expression, and as we consider it in light of the way it's been used in 2 Corinthians, the point that Paul is trying to make is that when we hear the gospel, we come awake. This is faith, and it is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. We are naturally awakened, those of us who are of the elect, who are called by God to become sons of God. We are naturally awakened by the gospel. It comes to us. Sometimes it's startling and it's surprising, but for many of us, it comes to us as a gradual dawning of light on our heart. Either way, we encounter a new world and we're ready for the day and we're ready for the sun who illuminates that day. But for those who are rejecting Christ, they want to stay in bed no matter what. They reject him entirely and want nothing to do with him. But as each of us steps out into the day, we step out into greater and greater dependence upon the one who shines forth the path before us. Notice what Paul is saying here. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Again, I love the ESV translation, but as with all translations, it struggles to really show the continuous action of both of these verbs. Paul makes the statement, he says, I'm not ashamed of the power of, God, of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who is believing. This is ongoing, continuous belief. And he goes on to say, in it, the righteousness of God is being revealed. There is this aspect in which Our understanding of God as we walk with him continues to grow and to grow and to be more clearly revealed and be more clearly seen. We understand it as we step out that front door in that morning, dressed for our day, ready to encounter what God has for us. We are walking with him by faith. It is going to be revealed gradually, and our faith, as we are continuing to believe, is to be growing. Paul says it is from faith we begin in a moment of believing in God, trusting in the Son, and it is to grow forwards, it is to grow bigger and greater into a larger faith that is a greater confidence and a greater trust and a greater dependence upon God. Now, for so many of us, we come to our walk with Jesus, and we say all that this really is is that I need to believe in certain things that happened 2,000 years ago on the cross, and it doesn't really matter what I do today. In fact, I can do anything that I want today. I can live however I want. It doesn't matter how I live because ultimately I'm just saved based upon my faith. But the way that Paul is quoting Habakkuk 2.4 in this particular passage, and the way that he's talking about faith in this particular passage is that it is not merely a matter of what you understand to be true historically. It is a matter of stepping out in dependence upon and confidence upon the one who can save you and the character of that faith, if it is true from the beginning, if you are truly depending upon God, the character of that faith is such that you will believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins, an action that took place 2,000 years ago, and you will follow him from that moment of initial faith into greater faith. You will hold your father's hand and step out in faithful obedience to what he has for you you today. To be saved 
is not like an eh, 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 alarm clock. To be saved is like sunshine awakening you from a long slumber so that you can now see how you're to go forth and to live your day. Who's ready to get out of bed this morning? I hope all of us are. Paul says it is from faith for faith. Very often times I encounter, and it's most prevalent amongst young people, amongst those who are 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 years of age, either about to graduate high school or uh, about halfway through university. It's very common amongst this group of individuals, but I also encounter it across all age spans. How much sin can I get away with and still be saved? How far away from God can I walk and not lose my salvation. And on the one hand, I can say to you very confidently, there is no sin which will keep you from God. There is no amount of sin that will exclude you from His grace and His mercy. But the fact that you're phrasing the question in that way, the fact that you are seeking justification to walk in the opposite direction away from where God would have you to go leads me to question your faith in the first place. A child of God who has been saved by the gospel, who has placed his faith in Jesus and understands what justification is, is not an individual who says, great, now I can live however I want A child of God is an individual who says, thank you, God, for saving me. I didn't deserve it. You put forth all that was necessary in putting Jesus on the cross. I have hope in that. I have faith in that. Now lead me into greater faith. I want to walk with you. If the heart condition is, I do not want to walk with God. I want to live life my own way. Then is this the individual who's living by faith, according to Habakkuk chapter 2? Or is this the individual who is puffed up with pride, according to Habakkuk chapter 2. You see, the way that Habakkuk reads is we have two types of individuals. The man who is righteous, the man who has been declared righteous by God, lives his life by faith. That is, dependence upon God, hope in what Christ has done on the cross. The antithesis of that, the individual who is puffed up, the individual who's not living, the individual who's not saved, the wicked man, He does not live his life by faith. He lives his life based on his own understanding of what is necessary in order to be right with God, not based upon who God is and what God has declared. So often I hear young people saying, I can toy with sin and everything is going to be okay. And again, as a pastor, I want to caution you, whether young or old, there is No way for you to toy with sin and be safe from the consequences of it. And what's worse is to even begin to think along those lines is a departure from faith in Christ, which calls into question the whole nature of whether or not you had faith in the first place. It breaks my heart. It really breaks my heart because Jesus is so much better than the world. 
I've been having uh, conversations with an individual recently who he believed in Jesus. There was a traumatic event that took place that led him to question the power of the gospel to bring about transformation in his life. And his response to that was to begin to question the legitimacy of the resurrection. And in the conversations I had with this individual, he says, I believe that Jesus was God, but I don't believe that he came out of the ground on the third day. I don't believe that he was resurrected. I don't believe that he's still alive today. And this is the question that we all have to face sooner or later. Where else will we place our hope if we don't place it in the empty tomb? Is Jesus God if he's still dead? If we will not step forth in that glorious day, that glorious morning, that Easter morning that Jesus purchased for us by conquering the grave, where else will we go? There is no further hope of salvation because there is no other hope. True saving faith is a persevering faith. True saving faith is a faith that continues on by the grace of God. God gives you what he expects and demands from you. He gives you righteousness which comes from faith. And he gives you faith to continue believing in him. Mark chapter 13 Jesus talking about the end of the world. Two passages which I have always held side by side, Mark 13 and Luke 14. Jesus says in Luke 14, when the Son of Man comes, he comes. But will he find faith on the earth when he comes? And in Mark chapter 13, again, Jesus talking about the end of the world. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, Paul in Romans says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But to believe that truly, to hope that sincerely, is to hope that forever. Not just today, not just yesterday, but every day. The question remains for us, We've been justified by the blood of the Lamb. Now how shall we live? On the night that God rescued the Jews from Egypt, on the night that he brought them out, they sacrificed the blood of the Lamb. And the angel of death struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. They were spared as they sat together in their homes enjoying that Passover meal. They were spared from the judgment of God. They were in that moment based upon the shed blood of the lamb, fully justified. But do you know how God instructed his people to participate in that Passover? He said, eat it with your shoes on and your staff in your hand. Eat it prepared and ready to go. Because after I do this thing in Egypt, 
Pharaoh will set you free. The question is now, will we follow God as he leads us out of bondage? I mean, it's not recorded anywhere in Scripture. But can you imagine if poor Bob or poor John, those two Jews talking on that fateful night just before the Passover, were to awaken after the angel of death struck down all the firstborn in Egypt and were to say to themselves, all well and good. I've been spared the death of my firstborn son, but you know what? I really am comfortable here. And I like it here in this, in this God-forsaken land of death and destruction. I like my house here in this fallen, broken land. And you know what? I think even though God has rescued me, I think I'll just stay put. What would the outcome be of an individual who, thinking in their own heart, you know, how long can I stay here while I see all the Lord's people and the Lord himself leaving? How long can I stay put and stay here and still be saved by the Lord? And the answer to that question is, you cannot be saved if you stay put. God has saved you that you would walk with him and follow him. From faith, for faith. The question remains, how now do we go forward and live? And the answer is, by faith. Pray with me, church. Lord in heaven, we thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, but all too often we, we treat that grace as though it is a cheap grace, as though it was not costly, as though there is no response expected of us, as though we are not needed to repent, and all of this misses the point that you died to have a relationship with us by faith. This is not a one-time transaction. It was never a one-time transaction for you. It was intended always for your people to have a relationship with you, to be known as sons and daughters of the Most High, that we would live with you. Lord, I pray this morning that as we look at this particular text from Romans, as we hear the Apostle Paul saying, from faith we are saved, for faith, that you would work in our hearts to bring conviction that we would know, Almighty God, that we are to walk with you in faithful obedience and growing in our faith day by day as you and your righteousness are continuously being revealed to us by greater and greater degree. Lord, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, as we all behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And our prayer this morning, Lord, as we conclude, Help us to have faith. Help us to see that we would be transformed. Work in us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.